Well, good evening. This evening, we continue in our series of studies in Second Chronicles, in chapter 25, verse 1. You can turn there with me. And this evening, we're going to be looking at the life of Amaziah, king of Judah. Amaziah. Amaziah was a man who started out well, started out serving the Lord, but at a certain point, we'll see, he put other things or allowed other things to become more important in his heart. Over the years, I've known many people who have started to follow the Lord, but then at a certain point, something became more important to them than their relationship with the Lord. And it's sad when you see that. It almost never ends well. You know, we can have many interests, and there can be many things happening in our lives, many relationships, many good things, but it's almost like when I was a kid, I used to ask my mom when I'd see a series of flags, I would always say, well, why is the American flag always higher than all the other surrounding flags? And my mom explained to me that's because we put our country and the symbol of the emblem of our country above all else. Well, when we think about our relationship with the Lord, we can have a lot of different interests, a lot of different relationships, a lot of different things going on in our lives, but our relationship with God always needs to be the most important relationship in our lives. And when something else gets in the way of that or takes the place of that, as I said, it never ends well. This evening, let's open in a word of prayer as we look at the life of Amaziah, king of Judah. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we ask that in this study we would come closer to you, that we would grow closer to you and learn more about you, but that our hearts would be open to you, maybe in a way they've never been open before, that we might hear your voice and understand your word and take the time to give our hearts to you afresh and anew, and that we wouldn't allow anything to rival our relationship with you, or take the place of our relationship with you, or be more important in our lives than you and your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we read in chapter 25 and verse 1 that Amaziah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years, and his mother's name was Jehoiadin, and she was from Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not wholeheartedly. That is to say, not completely. And that can mean that at the time that he was serving the Lord, his whole heart didn't belong to the Lord. Or it can mean that at a certain point, his heart drifted from the Lord. You know, both are probably true. As we look at his ascent to the throne, Amaziah inherited the kingdom of Judah from his father, Joash. And we looked at the life of Joash last week. His father, Joash, had rebelled against the Lord, and he was wounded in battle, and it left him extremely vulnerable. So he was assassinated in his bed at Beth Milo by two of his own officials because he had become a despised individual, because he had turned his back on the Lord, and he had actually accomplished a great deal before a man who was his mentor and adopted father really his uncle as well, uh, before this man, uh, who was so influential in his life, died, he was doing okay. But then when Jehoiada died, this man, his, his, the high priest, he, he went completely in the wrong direction. 
And as a result, we're talking about Joash now, the father of Amaziah. As a result, his own officials thought of him as someone that wasn't even worthy to live, and they assassinated him. And he wasn't loved by too many people. In fact, he wasn't even given a royal burial. But Amaziah, that is Joash's son, Amaziah was named Amaziah because his name means the strength of Jehovah. And he reigned as king for 29 years, 25 when he became king. And as we studied last week, his father Joash had reigned for 40 years. So it's a long dynasty of, of kings, and they had reigned for quite a while. We learned that his mother's name was Jehoiadin. Uh, she was one of Joash's two wives from Jerusalem. But Amaziah's relationship with the Lord, again, not fully devoted. How many people do we know that are just not completely devoted? Not fully given over to the Lord. They kind of serve God. They, they might love God. They might go to church. They might read their Bibles. But there are just other things that are more important. So if they have an opportunity to do something else on a Sunday, oh, well, we're not going to go to church this Sunday. And not that going to church makes you a good Christian. Oh, well, you know, I really wanted to do that outreach, or I wanted to get involved in that ministry or that mission, but you know what? There's an opportunity to do something I like better. We see that so often in this world, especially in our culture. He didn't follow the example of his forefather, David. Now, it's interesting because David's the gold standard for the kings of Judah. David had served the Lord wholeheartedly, even though he was a sinner. We all know that David had sin in his life, a guilty sinner. And yet, he's described as a man after God's own heart. Not because he was perfect, but because his heart belonged to the Lord. Even when he failed, his heart still belonged to the Lord. So when we say wholeheartedly, we're not talking about serving the Lord perfectly. Wholeheartedly means your heart belongs to God. That doesn't mean that you don't fail. David failed, but David loved the Lord. He had a heart to praise and worship the Lord. And when he failed, he repented and gave his heart to God. But this man, Amaziah, did follow the example of his father, Joash, who started out well but didn't end very well. See, Joash was fully devoted to the Lord his God early in his reign, but he forsook the Lord his God after the death of Jehoiada the priest. So here you have this definition of wholeheartedly. That is, your heart can belong to the Lord wholeheartedly at a point, but then your relationship sort of wanes, or it doesn't really belong to the Lord and over time, it becomes evident that your heart never was completely given to God. <clears throat> so that's a good definition of what it means to be wholeheartedly serving God. One of the things we're told in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 4, which is the parallel passage uh, that teaches about his life as well, is that he was unable to completely eliminate the idolatrous altars from the land. People were still serving idols. In fact, he worshiped the Lord, but he tolerated false religious practices within his kingdom. He allowed others to choose not to serve the Lord, and he looked the other way while others openly disobeyed the word of the Lord. Ultimately, it affected his relationship with God because he would ultimately become an idolater as well. See, if you don't eliminate those influences in your life, they'll creep up on you. And before you know it, you'll be doing the same thing as the people you're hanging out with. The same people around you, uh, the same people that you're around, will influence you to do what they're doing. Well, we get into the uh, account here. Just verses 3 and 4 tell us something interesting. 
Again, this is when he started out and things were going pretty well for him. We learn that after the kingdom was firmly in his control, he executed the officials who had murdered his father, the king. Yet he did not put their sons to death, but acted in accordance with what is written in the law, in the book of Moses, where the Lord commanded, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sins. And I think that that is an interesting uh, way of thinking about justice, because in the Middle East, even today, there's this concept, and, and we're much more individually minded in the West. In the East, you're kind of considered part of something bigger than yourself. So your family, your lineage, your culture. And so when you do wrong, your family suffers. And that's true regardless of whether they're punished. But in the Middle East, if someone does something like, let's say, an act of terrorism, they will oftentimes bulldoze the house and the family will have no place to live. Even if they kill the terrorist, the family suffers. That's foreign to us because we can't imagine a world where, you know, one of our family members does something and then we're included in the punishment because we're not built that way. We're not wired that way. And that's not the way our culture works. But in the Middle Eastern and Far Eastern cultures, they do think that way. And they bear responsibility for the reputation of their families. So I'm not going to argue which is better or worse. If you'll remember a couple weeks ago on Sunday... Uh, we were studying in Daniel chapter 6, and we saw that when all of the satraps and the officials uh, were thrown into the lion's den after Daniel was delivered, Darius threw them all in there, but he also threw their wives and their children in there. And that seemed really, really unjust. And, and, and I would argue it is, and of course that wasn't God's justice, that was Persian justice. But it goes to show you that Persia you know, is in the Middle East, you know, Iran, as we know it today, and the Far East, the Middle East, they do have this very harsh justice, and it is what keeps people from committing crimes. And you say, oh, that's horrible, Pastor Tim, that's horrible, I I wouldn't want to live in that culture. Well, we live in a culture where people do horrible things, and they're out the same day, and they go commit horrible crimes the same day that they were arrested for another horrible crime. So if we had just kept them in jail whoever was the victim of the second crime would, would have not been a victim. And we think, oh, well, is that good? Is that justice? So, you know, you have these extremes, harsh, severe justice, and then really no justice at all. So we're living in a culture now where you have to put bars on your windows to protect yourself from the criminals that are out there as opposed to putting the criminals behind bars. So there is a balance. I think we can find it if we use our brains. But I want to point out, though, that this king looked at God's word and said, well, God's word says that we shouldn't punish the families of those who commit crimes. See, it was common practice at that time as a deterrent to punish everyone, to take out the whole family. Basically what it meant is you thought twice before doing something wrong. But God's word is much more merciful, and God is more merciful than that. And so when he saw in God's word that he shouldn't punish these families and not take vengeance against these individuals that had assassinated his father, he followed God's word. And of course it would have taken him a while to firmly establish himself in the kingdom as we we read there because 
there had just been an assassination. And any time that a leader is assassinated, what happens next is, is a time of, of turmoil. But once he did, he realized he couldn't exact revenge against the families of his father's killers because if he exacted revenge, then they would want revenge. And then he would want revenge. And they would want revenge. And what happens with revenge, and not justice, revenge, it never ends. It never ends. So justice is a good thing. Revenge is not a good thing. And God is not interested in us taking vengeance. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And so justice, yes. Vengeance, no. Well, he immediately took steps to strengthen the armed forces in Judah. Now, this was an important decision because, as we know from our past studies, the army, and specifically this nation of Judah, this kingdom of Judah, had become weaker and weaker. As they had gotten involved in more and more conflicts, their army became weaker. Uh, The kings that that, that preceded this, this man, Amaziah, had been defeated on the battlefield. So he wanted to make sure that they were protected, that he could protect the nation. It's a good decision. And so we read in verses 5 through 10, we read in chapter 25, verse uh, 5 of uh, Second Chronicles, Amaziah called the people of Judah together and assigned them according to their families to commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds for all Judah and Benjamin. And he Then mustered those 20 years old or more and found that there were 300,000 men ready for military service, able to handle the spear and the shield. And he also hired 100,000 fighting men from Israel for 100 talents of silver. But a man of God came to him and said, O king, these troops from Israel, now that's the northern kingdom, and they were wicked. The southern kingdom of Judah was not, but the northern kingdom is wicked. A man of God came to him and said, O king, these troops from Israel must not march with you, for the Lord is not with Israel. (coughs) Not with any of the people of Ephraim. That was the leading tribe in the northern kingdom. Even if you go and fight courageously in battle, God will overthrow you before the enemy, for God has the power to help or to overthrow. I want you to note that. God has the power to help or to overthrow. If we serve God, God will bless us. If we reject God, God will not bless us. His blessings come to us when we submit our hearts to him as individuals, as a nation. When we submit our hearts to him, he blesses us. Our nation has been blessed in the past when our nation was willing to serve God according to his word. Clearly, our nation is not willing to serve God according to his word. All manner of evil is being perpetrated in our nation and in our culture. We see so much immorality and and, and so many anti-Christian bills and and, and policies being promoted. And it breaks my heart because I know that it's God who has the power, as it says here, to help or to overthrow. We need God's help, and yet we're seeing our, our very way of life overthrown. We see inflation. We see supply chain issues. We see all kinds of unrest and crime. We are rejecting God, and therefore our culture is being overthrown. But if we turned our hearts to God or toward God, as a culture, God would help us. Amen? And so realize that. See, that verse is very powerful, and I wish more people would understand that. Of course, we can, as God's people, cry out to him nonetheless on behalf of our culture. But it goes on to say that Amaziah asked the man of God, but what about the hundred talents I paid 
for these Israelite troops, that is, those troops from the north, the man of God replied, and this is great, the Lord can give you much more than that. He was worried about the money he had paid these troops, but God didn't want him to have mercenaries from the north fighting alongside him. God wouldn't bless them if they aligned themselves with them. But he's thinking, well, what about the money I spent? I already gave it to them. And he says this, he says, the Lord can give you much more than that. Maybe you've got involved in some type of uh, financial endeavor or business, or you've decided to do something, you paid the money, and now you're thinking, you know, the Lord has shown me I, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't get involved in that. I shouldn't be a part of that. You think about, well, what about the money? And I want to say the Lord can give you much more than that. I can remember when I first became a Christian, the year I first became a Christian, I had rented a shore house for, I guess it cost me about 800 bucks for the summer, you know? And uh, my grandmother never let me forget that I paid $800 because she had a shore house, but she couldn't understand why, again, I wasn't a Christian. She couldn't understand why I didn't want to spend the summer with her at her house, you know. But uh, regardless, for $800, I rented a shore house with some friends. And I wasn't a Christian when I made the decision. So then I become a Christian, and now I'm not so keen on the idea of being in a shore house with people who are not Christians. But I paid the money, right? And I got my grandmother giving me a hard time because she kept saying to me, why don't you give me the $800? You can stay here. But now she's right, <coughs> and I don't want to really waste the money. I can't get the money back, so I decide, yeah, I'll, I'll continue to go down the shore. I went down two or three times because every time I went down there, no good was happening, you know? So, yeah, so I should have gave my grandmother the $800. But I do know this. The Lord, the Lord, as we learned, he's able to do or to give you much more than that. It would be better to say, you know what? That was a decision I made. It wasn't a good decision. Forfeit the money. Know that God will bless me above and beyond that if I honor him. Ultimately, that's what I did. I just really didn't go down there. I was going to go down there every week, you know, and I ended up going down there a handful of times. So sometimes we just need to cut our losses. Sometimes we need to realize, you know what? This, just, this relationship, this business, this job, this school, this program I got involved in, it's not honoring to God, and God is showing me it's not something I need to be a part of. It's something I shouldn't be a part of. Be best if I just cut my losses and know that whatever I spent, God is able to give me much more than that. Amen? So sometimes we make mistakes. Sometimes we made decisions before we understood it was a bad decision. I just want to encourage you. God is able to bless you if you honor him. So Amaziah, in verse 10, dismissed the troops would come to him from Ephraim and sent them home. And they were furious with Judah and left home in a great rage. Now, they got paid, so you're wondering, well, why were they so upset? Well, the, the payment was just a down payment, really. <coughs> they were hoping to, to conquer another nation and uh, receive all that plunder. They were looking for a percentage of the plunder. And now they're told they can't participate, so they got to settle for whatever it was they were, the minimum, you might say, of what they were hoping to make. So that's why they're furious, because he had promised them more. He had given them some, but promised them more. And so, uh, in verse 10, we, uh, verses 5 through 10, we see that as he's beginning to strengthen the armed forces in Judah, 
he first of all does a good thing. He drafts an army of 300,000 from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. That is their own people. But when he hired them 100,000 mercenaries from the northern kingdom, the Lord told him or directed him to dismiss them and to rely on God's strength. Now, do you remember what his name means? His name means the strength of Jehovah. And God wanted him to rely on the strength of Jehovah, which is what his name means. He didn't want him to rely on the strength of others. And it is very easy at times to rely on others or rely on their strength or rely on people instead of relying on God. The lesson here is to rely on God. And in his strength, he will deliver you. So he's rebuked by a man of God and encouraged to send them home. And now they're highly insulted. And that's not going to end well, as we'll see in a minute. Now, one of the things he did, uh, we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks. There was a a, a nation or a kingdom called the uh, Kingdom of Edom. They were descended, the people of Edom were descended from Esau, who is the twin brother of Jacob, who is also called Israel. So they're closely aligned or related to Israel, but they were traditional enemies. So as a result, this kingdom or nation of Edom was sometimes subjugated by the Israelites. And then when Israel became weak, one of the first things Edom would do was rebel and seek their own independence. So they had been weak as a nation over the last couple of years. Edom had rebelled. First thing he wants to do is reconquer this vassal state of Edom, and he wants to do it in God's strength. So we read in verses 11 and 12 that Amaziah... <coughs> Excuse me. Then marshaled his strength and led his army to the Valley of Salt, where he killed 10,000 men of Seir. That's the mountain that the Edomites lived on. The army of Judah also captured 10,000 men alive, and this gets a little brutal. They took them to the top of a cliff and threw them down so that all were dashed to pieces. This was sort of a mass execution. Now listen, the Bible is a true account of the brutality of man against his brother. It doesn't mean God approves of a lot of what happens. But look at it from the perspective of the Israelites or or the, the kingdom of Judah. This rebellious nation had come against them many times. Every time Judah was a little weak, these guys would turn their backs on him, stab him in the back. They would pledge their loyalty, but the minute they had an opportunity, they would take advantage of that opportunity and attack them. So now what they want to do is send a strong message. So they fight, they kill 10,000, there's another 10,000 left, they're prisoners of war, let's say, and they decide, look, we have to send a strong message. So what were they supposed to do? Well, they executed them. There are many ways they could have executed uh, all of these men, but this is pretty brutal when you think about it. 10,000 people thrown off a cliff, uh, just, just brutal, and that's mankind. Mankind, as we see, we continue to see throughout the history of man, man is incredibly brutal when it comes to war and when it comes to conflict. But that happened there, and they were all dashed to pieces. So in those verses, we learn that uh, this area of Edom was conquered again, And it was a strategically important region because it had access to the southern trade routes. So what they could do is they could sort of choke the life out of the commerce 
of the kingdom of Judah. And they would do this. Uh, they would use their strategic location to harm Judah. So what they wanted to do is take over the country, put them in subjugation so that they could control the trade routes. And therein lies the reason for most wars. They're almost always economically based. When you look at why a war is fought, almost always there's economic reasons for it, right? So he killed 10,000 and then uh, captured Mount Seir. Now, Mount Seir is the rock city of Petra. You're probably familiar with that. It's an archaeological site in that part of the world, in, in what is today called Jordan. It's a very well-known uh, place that people like to visit. But at that time, it was captured by Israel and the army of Judah, or Judah, and the army of Judah captured and executed the rest of the men, the 10,000 Edomites. They marched right off a cliff. Well, after reconquering the vassal state of Edom and putting them in subjugation, something happened. And this often happens when we are successful. This King Amaziah started to become filled with pride. And he started to think more highly of himself than he ought to. It's a very dangerous place to be. What he did was turned his back on God. Because when you start to look at your own strength, remember Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, <coughs> he started to think of himself as the one that had all the power and the ability to uh, control the world. He started to see himself in this way and very proud of all that he had accomplished. He took all the credit for it. What ended up happening there in Daniel chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar was severely humbled. So what's going to happen here is Amaziah is going to turn his back on God and he's going to be severely humbled. And so we read in verses 13 through 16 of chapter 25. Meanwhile, the troops that Amaziah had sent back and had not allowed to take part in the war. Remember the mercenaries from the north? They raided Judean towns from Samaria to Bethhorn, and they killed 3,000 people and carried off great quantities of plunder. And when Amaziah returned from slaughtering the Edomites, <coughs> he brought back the gods of the people of Seir. So he conquers the people and takes their gods, which would have been made of precious metals. He took them sort of as trophies, right? And he set them up as his own gods. And he bowed down to them and burned sacrifices to them. And the anger of the Lord burned against Amaziah, and he sent a prophet to him who said, Why do you consult this people's gods, which could not save their own people from your hand? I mean, think about it. If these gods were so powerful, why did the people that served them get marched off a cliff and conquered? Why did 20,000 of them, 20, of them uh, fail to be able to stop Judah? And yet he's serving the gods that failed to protect and bless the Edomites. I know what you're thinking. I'm thinking it too. That is pretty stupid. But how many people out there turn their back on God and follow the very things that the world follows to their own detriment, to their, to their own demise. Well, I don't know why people do these things. I'm not sure exactly why he did, but I know this. While he was still speaking, it says in verse 16, the king said to him, to this prophet who was raised up, have we appointed you 
an advisor to the king? Stop. Why be struck down? He was going to kill him because he didn't like what he had to say. So the prophet stopped and said, I know that God is determined to destroy you because you have done this and have not listened to my counsel. See, he was going to bring destruction in his own life because he turned his back on God. How many people do we know that have brought destruction into their lives because they've turned their back on God and served other gods, given their hearts over to things like money or getting rich or, or success or relationships or, or, or sexual relationships or whatever it is that they put in the place of their relationship with God, they almost always suffer for that in this life. They certainly suffer in the afterlife, but suffer in this life because they make a decision to turn their back on God, not to listen to the counsel of God's prophets. That is his word. And God was determined to destroy him. Now, he could have repented, but instead he even threatened this prophet. So you can see his heart is far from God. (coughs) Now, why he forsook the Lord I can't tell you, but I can tell you it happened after he had been successful. And people get crazy after they have success. We know that Judas suffered severe loss at the hands of these mercenaries who were prevented from participating in the battle. What we do know is while they were paid, they didn't get any of the plunder. And now he receives all the plunder. They see what's going on and they say, well, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to get our plunder and we're going to take it from them. And so they raided Judean towns, and they killed 3,000 people and carried off a great quantity of plunder. So who brought that on himself? Well, that was Amaziah. That was his fault for even hiring these guys in the first place. You've got to be careful who you, so to speak, get into bed with. You know, you have to be careful who you hire. You have to be careful who you get involved in uh, with with business and and, and who, who you might spend time with because... The wrong kinds of people, it can really cost you a great deal. It can even cost you your life. You know, you start to hang around with the wrong kinds of people, and then they don't like something you say or something you've done, and you don't know what these kind of crazy people will do. And look what happened here. You've got to be careful. We need to be careful. Amaziah began to worship the objects of his success, and I think that's what really happened. We start to worship the objects of our success. So you... You know, you might be involved in a sport and you get a medal or you get a trophy. And as is our practice, we oftentimes take those things and put them on the mantle or on a shelf and show them off. And and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that necessarily, but sometimes people put all of their hope and all of their, 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 their themselves into their trophies, the things they've accomplished in life. Look at my new car. Look at my new house. Uh, look at this trophy I got, or look at this medal I, I received. Uh, look, at, look at this bonus I got for being so great at what I do. And we call those people braggarts. We, we, we don't enjoy being around people like that all that much, do we? But what they're doing is they're finding their identity in the things they do and the things they accomplish and not in the Lord. You know, one of the things I appreciate so much about martial arts is yeah, yeah, okay, we work really hard and we get belts and, you know, we move up and we, we get, you know, a, an increase in rank as we achieve things. But the whole attitude in martial arts is that of humility. 
you know, if you, if you come in like a proud fool, you're going to find it awfully quick. There's always somebody who can hit you harder and put you on the mat very quick. And that sort of attitude is not tolerated at a dojo, at least not in the dojo that I go to. And I'll tell you what, in the church, we should have that same attitude, an attitude of humility. No matter how much we've accomplished, no matter how much we may think, oh, well, I'm so successful, always look at others and esteem them higher than yourselves. That's what Paul told us in Philippians chapter 2. Esteem one another higher than yourselves. Don't walk around thinking, ooh, I really am somebody. Because you're going to find out awfully quick, you're nobody. It's like Anthony was sharing in worship tonight. We're just a nobody apart from God. We're somebody in Christ, but we're nobody apart from him. Well, this man forgot those things. He began to worship the objects of his success. He brings these gods of the Edomites back to Judah, sets them up as his own gods, and begins to worship them. What he's really doing is worshiping his own success. And the Lord rebuked him by a prophet because he was foolishly consulting gods that couldn't do anything for him, rejecting the Lord's counsel, even threatening the prophet's life. But the prophet declared that the Lord was determined to destroy him for his wickedness, and we'll see that's exactly what happened. Here's what happens in verses 17 through 22. Now he's proud. Now he's arrogant. Now he thinks he's hot stuff. So he's thinking, well, we really destroyed the Edomites. Who am I going after next? Well, who do you think he's going to go after next? What had just happened with the northern kingdom of Israel? They killed 3,000 and they took his plunder. So now it's a matter of pride. And so we read in verses 17 through 22, we read, This air conditioner blowing my Bible around here. Okay. After Amaziah, king of Judah, consulted his advisors, he sent this challenge. A challenge. He had somebody starting trouble, right? When somebody gets in your face, sort of a challenge. He sent this challenge to Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, the king of Israel. That's the king of the northern kingdom. Come, meet me face to face. But Joash, king of Israel, replied to Amaziah, king of Judah, A thistle in Lebanon sent a message to a cedar in Lebanon. Give your daughter to my son in marriage. Then a wild beast in in Lebanon came along and trampled the thistle underfoot. You say to yourself that you have defeated Edom, and now you are arrogant and proud. But stay at home. Why ask for trouble and cause your own downfall and that of Judah? Amaziah, however, would not listen, for God so worked that he might hand them over to Jehoash, because they sought the gods of Edom. He was told in advance that this was going to happen, but he still acted like a fool. So Jehoash, king of Israel, attacked. He and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced each other at Beth Shemesh in Judah. Judah was routed by Israel, that is, they were utterly defeated, and every man fled to his home. So he really thought he was going to be able to defeat the northern kingdom. Started trouble. He started this trouble. You know, don't pick a fight with someone that's better than you. That's, that's one thing I would say, you know. You don't, you don't pick a fight. You really shouldn't pick a fight with anyone, right? So the idea is he, he's starting trouble. He didn't need this. He's even warned not to do this by the king himself. I mean, when you're proud 
and you're arrogant, and you're full of yourself, you're going to provoke other people. And that's exactly what he did. He's responding to the raids by the mercenaries by challenging the king of Israel. He wants the money back. He wants the plunder back. He wants reparations, if you will. He had allowed himself to take credit for the Lord's victory over Edom. Started to think that he was really good. But of course, now he's turned his back on God. And he started to think of himself more highly than he ought to due to his advisors. And here's another warning. Be careful if you have an amen chorus. That is a group of people around you that always tell you what you want to hear. You know, you're surrounded by advisors who rather than tell you the truth, they're a bunch of yes men or yes women, and they just tell you what you want to hear. The problem is that these advisors turned his heart away from God and gave him poor advice, and he followed it. And when you're following the advice of people that really aren't thinking straight, you're going to make really terrible decisions. Be careful whose advice you listen to. And so, Joash belittles the man. That makes things worse, right? He, he says, oh, a thistle said to a cedar. You know, a cedar's a giant tree. A thistle's like a little scrub plant, you know. And he's, he, he's mocking him. He uses this, this mocking, I'm sure, mocking tone, but also this belittling story, warning him not to challenge him in battle. Don't, you know... Go, don't start trouble with somebody much bigger and better than you, he might say. And, and of course, that only made this, this guy Amaziah, this king, want to attack even more because he's proud. And Amaziah rejected the wise and merciful counsel, I might add, of Jehoash, and he was soundly defeated. And the Lord worked through this and his unwillingness to listen to hand them over to Israel because this is exactly what God had determined would happen if he didn't re- repent. And this is because he had sought the gods of Edom and rejected the Lord. So, look at verses 23 through 24. <clears throat> this man is going to receive a severe humbling. Have you ever been severely humbled? I'm not just talking about humbled. I'm talking about severely humbled. Like you were proud, you were dumb, you were stupid, and you did something, you said something and you were completely humbled because of it, it's not a good feeling. It is not a pleasant experience. Well, it gets really bad for this guy. Look at verses 23 through 24. We learn there in verse 23 that Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh, and then Jehoash brought him to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate, a section about 600 feet long. He took all the gold and silver and all the articles found in the temple of God that had been in the care of Obed-Edom, together with the palace treasures and the hostages, and returned to Samaria. So utterly defeated, humiliated even, all because he had to pick a fight, because he was proud, because he was arrogant. But again, this was God's punishment for his turning his back on on him. So, being severely humbled, he was taken captive as a hostage to the city of Jerusalem by this king, this northern uh, king of the northern uh, kingdom, Jehoash. He breaks down the wall, plunders the city, and takes hostages back to his capital city in Samaria. 
Now, here, here's what I want you to think about. Yes, this fulfilled the word of the Lord through the prophet Amaziah. This fulfilled God's word. But think about what Amaziah did to his own people. He endangered not only his own life and his own personal freedom, he jeopardized the lives of his people and the safety of his own city because he was proud. And he forfeited his many blessings and the blessings of countless others. And this is what happens when you have a proud leader who's more interested in making himself look good than serving people. Right now in our nation, we have an administration that is way more political than helpful. And as a result, people are suffering. And at no point do you see anyone saying, you know, maybe we made a mistake. Maybe we need to change course. No. Got to be right. Got to continue doing the things that got us into this mess and continuing to promote silliness and ungodliness. But it's not just the people who make these decisions that suffer. We suffer because of the pride and arrogance of others, and especially our leaders. Think about what this man did to his own people. They suffered because he was a proud fool. And you'll see that over and over again throughout history and even today, that when proud fools refuse to repent and change course, what happens? They suffer and the people that they are leading suffer as well. And sometimes they suffer more. Well, what isn't immediately obvious here but comes out in the texts of both Second Kings and the, the chronology, is that he was taken captive for nine years. For nine years, this man was in captivity. That is, he was taken prisoner. His son ruled in his stead, we know this, but this man really was severely humbled. Not only was he defeated, he was taken into custody, and basically under house arrest. They didn't kill him, but they kept him captive in the north all that time, probably as a hostage to keep them from trying to do anything in the way of retaliating. In fact, we read in verse 25, back in Second Chronicles 25, we read there that Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, lived for 15 years after the death of Jehoash, son of Jehoaz, king of Israel. So what it doesn't say but bears out in the history is that after Jehoash, Jehoash died, they released him, and that was nine more years. So he was there for nine years, they release him, and he lives another 15 years, and of course he goes back to Judah where he is allowed to live again. So he was taken prisoner for those years that that king lived, and then released afterwards. What we do know is he had only actually ruled about five of the 29 years that he ruled in entirety, before he was captured by Jehoash. So in those first five years, all that we talked about took place. Then he's taken captive for nine years. And Jehoash mercifully, mercifully spared his life after he was captured. He could have killed him, could have put him to death, but he didn't. And we know that the record of all of this man's accomplishments has been preserved, and we're told that in verse 26. It says, as for the other events of uh, Amaziah's reign from beginning to end, are they not written in the book? the kings of Judah and Israel. Now, that, that's the reference to the books of First and Second Kings. And I've been mentioning some of the things that are, are written there. Of course, the book of Second Kings records Amaziah's reign as the king of Judah in Second Kings 14. I refer you to that if you're interested in more information. And when we say the books or the book, 
of the annals of the kings of Judah, that's really quoted within First and Second Chronicles, which is the book that we're, or the books that we're studying right now. So there are two sets of books that cover the history of the kings of Israel and Judah. And this is a study in Second Chronicles, but it refers to those other books that we've already studied in the past. So we actually know quite a bit about these kings because we have a lot of information. So Amaziah, though, was finally murdered. Look at verses 27 through 28. From the time that Amaziah turned away from following the Lord, they, that is his people, conspired against him in Jerusalem and he fled to Lachish. But they sent men after him to Lachish and killed him there. And he was brought back by horse and was buried with his fathers in the city of Judah. You see, his people realized that he was not fit to lead. Sometimes when someone's in a leadership position and they're not fit to lead, the people revolt. We've seen that in the past. We've seen that throughout history. And that's exactly what happened here. Now, while he was in custody for those nine years, his son, and we'll study about him next week, Uzziah, who was a very popular king, was maybe not the high king, but he was sort of the second to his father. He was actually ruling for those nine years. Then the guy's released, and he comes back, and I'm sure starting more trouble. So for the next 15 years, people are really tired of this guy, and ultimately they put him to death. The people conspire. These conspirators were motivated by his rebellious nature, his pride, his arrogance, and his rebellion against the Lord. So he has to flee Jerusalem. Because if he stays there, he's going to die, right? He goes to a city, a wicked and idolatrous city called Lachish, where ultimately he's killed. And he ultimately suffered the same inglorious fate as his father, Joash. So he started out like his father started out good, and he ended up the way his father ended up bad. And that's not a good testimony. He was killed for his foolish pride and his rebellion. And that is the end of a person who refuses to repent. He had reigned as king for a total of 29 years, we said. Again, nine of them in custody, five of them before he went into custody, 15 afterwards, and he was buried in Jerusalem, the city of David, in the tomb of the kings of Judah. He was given a royal burial, whereas his father wasn't, but he was killed. And then we know, and I'm just going to read the first two verses of chapter 26. Then all the people of Judah took Uzziah. Now remember, Uzziah is his son who's been ruling alongside him, not just for the nine years that his father was away, but the 15 years since his father came back. He was there, involved in leading the people. And it says that the people, the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in place of his father Amaziah. So he, he was 16 years old when he, when he was given that position. But understand something. This, this, is, this is what happens when people like one person over another, right? Sometimes what happens is they throw out the old guy and bring in the new guy. And, of course, the new guy happened to be the son of Amaziah. But he was 16 years old, and they made him king in place of his father Amaziah. And he was the one who rebuilt, we're told, Eloth and restored it to Judah after Amaziah rested with his fathers. So 
What happened here is he actually ascended to the throne as co-regent while his father was held captive. That's why he was just 16 years old. And he co-reigned with him for the next 15 years after his father's release until his father was murdered. And then the officials, the officials probably murdered Amaziah because they preferred Uzziah as king of Judah. They get rid of the father so that Uzziah could be king and make his own decisions without the interference of his father, his wicked father. Now, Isaiah is immediately praised for one of his many accomplishments during his reign, but we will pick it up next week when we look at the reign of Uzziah, who was a very popular king and a good king and accomplished a great deal, not like his father or his grandfather. He was a very good man. And uh, you'll probably remember the name Uzziah from Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah tells us, in the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. In fact, Uzziah... I don't want to get ahead of myself, but he was such a good king and the people loved him so much that not only did they get his father out of the way so he could rule and reign by himself, when he died, the nation went into turmoil and things were looking really grim. People were worried, what's going to happen to us? And it was at that time that Isaiah the prophet said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And his glory filled the temple, and he receives his vision of God on the throne. And it comforted Isaiah to know that even though Uzziah had died, God was still in control. I want to leave you with a positive note. Even though our world looks pretty grim right now, even though things seem out of control, and even though we have a proud fool over us in this nation, you need to understand that God is still in control. Amen? God is still in control. You, you don't need to sit at home worrying about what's going to happen. Because whether you see a vision like Isaiah or not, you need to know the Lord is high and lifted up on his throne, ruling and reigning. And you do not need to worry because God is sovereign. And I'm going to tell you something I've said over and over again. I really do believe these couple of painful years that we're going to go through will ultimately destroy the enemies of freedom and liberty, and godliness in our nation. My mom used to say it this way, give them enough rope to hang themselves. So they have power. For how long? They only have the power that God has allowed them to have. And they're destroying themselves. And they're losing their power. And my prayer is that the people will rise up, not in a violent way, but at the ballot box, and throw the bums out. But we'll see couple of months before the next election, and then a couple of years before the next election after that. But I pray for our nation because I know that even though proud fools are sometimes given power, God is still in control. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. You've never forsaken us as your church. And I don't believe you've forsaken our nation either. We're going through a time of testing, a time of your judgment, where it seems that you're determined to destroy the enemies of goodness and morality. You're allowing these things to happen, and we trust you that you're in control. Give us faith and help us to get through these difficult times. Provide for our needs, and may we shine in the darkness. At a dark time in our nation's history, may we shine. May we share the gospel with those around us. May many come to faith the result of these difficult times. And if we have to pay a little bit more for food or gas, Okay, then provide what we need. But Lord God, may you give us the opportunity to share our faith with others, we pray.
In Jesus' precious name, amen.